Hey, fantasy fans, it's your favorite dungeon manager here. Before we start this episode, we just want to let you know that we talk about some pretty heavy stuff in it that some listeners might find troubling or uncomfortable. So we wanted to let you know before you start the episode. Of course, we try to be sensitive in all of our discussions, but some of the stuff we're covering is kind of serious. So listener discretion is advised. Hey, guys, what did you think of that villain? I mean, I just thought they were vile and disgusting. Oh, I know. Just no redeeming qualities, whatever. Completely monstrous. Complete lack of morality, I'd say. Very reptilian. I'm kind of disgusted that this movie would, like, sink to that level. And seriously, all they wanted was to perpetuate violence. I just... Oh, so gross. Especially their, like, predatory nature. The bloodthirst. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the disgusting things they did in the movie just really turned my stomach. I mean, yeah. Uh, How can you get much more villainous than a vampire, right? Oh, wait. That's who you guys are talking about? I was talking about Quentin Tarantino. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, I see it. You know, in light of that, I guess the vampires aren't so bad. Hello, Dark Fantasy fans, and welcome to Scares and Satire, the podcast where we turn spooky low fantasy into terrifying high art. I'm your creepy dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my blood-sucking co-hosts. My name is Chelsea Hollowell. I'm a problematic vampire, and my power is to make you feel deeply uncomfortable. That's... Interesting, because I've been planning on canceling you for a while. Whoa. (laughs) I'm glad you warned me. (laughs) I mean, it's only fair. (laughs) The honorable way to do it. (laughs) Problematic vampires are canceled. Regular vampires? Totally cool. They're okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's pretty good. I'm glad we cleared that up. But me? I'm Jack Olander, uh, uh, an innocent gas station employee... That, thank God I was killed within the first five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much better that way. It's better this way. It's better for you, that's for damn sure. You wouldn't have to be oogled by a a nerd in glasses? (laughs) I lived and died in innocence, and I didn't overstay my welcome. Oh my God. (laughs) 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 Well, guys... This week's episode is going to suck. <laughs> Jesus. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> because this week, for our Scares and Satire annual Scare Stravaganza, it's Vampire Week. Yeah. But before we talk about the movie, I want to talk about something that doesn't suck. And that's our patrons. Yeah, they chose this movie in our monthly poll and it... It's gonna. We're going to be covering from dusk till dawn. That's right. And, you know, we have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this movie, but we want to say 
We love our patrons and our fans, and we want to thank them for participating in the poll every month. And and their participation always makes it fun, and it's great to see what they pick. Yeah, I am always really excited to see our movie poll results every month. And if you want to help vote on movies too, you can go to patreon.com slash swords and satire, take a look at the tier lists, and every one of our patron tiers includes voting on the movies we watch once a month. And each tier also gets different types of exclusive art, like our rewriting history episodes that are basically our version of a movie pitch. And, and we are very professional, as you can already tell. <laughs> and different types of outtakes of our episodes and deleted clips. Of course, we rarely have outtakes because everything we do, solid gold. <laughs> We're like Rumpelstiltskin, just weaving gold out of poo-poo. I was going to say, even if it's shit, I make it shine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Something about the difference between shit and shinola, right? <laughs> so thanks to all our patrons. You guys don't suck. You blow. Our, our minds. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, we love you, and uh, thanks for supporting the show. Yeah, we really appreciate it, and now it's time to talk about this movie. That's right. So this week, we are talking about From Dusk Till Dawn, the 1996 Robert Rodriguez directed and edited vampire crime thriller slash supernatural action film starring Harvey Keitel, George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino. Who's also the writer. Obviously. <laughs> and Juliette Lewis. With awesome cameos like Tom Savini legendary Hollywood horror makeup artist. Oh, yes. Fred Williamson, Cheech Marin in no less than three distinct roles. Yeah. And, of course, everyone's favorite action movie star, Danny Trejo. I, I have to imagine that Danny Trejo has appeared in more movies that I've seen than any other actor alive. I don't know if that's true, but I'll believe it for now. That's the spirit. I accept. But that's enough me gushing over this amazing cast. I think Chelsea has a summary of the film locked and loaded in her codpiece gun. <laughs> oh my god, you guys. <laughs> this fucking movie. Wow. It's art. I'm happy it was made in 96 so that I could say I had nothing to do with its production. <laughs> yes, this movie is older than you are. I guess that's not difficult. I was going to say, a lot of the movies we watch are older than Jack by like a wide margin. <laughs> yes, but I feel grateful now. <laughs> Jack, you're from what? The Lord of the Rings uh, Fellowship of the Ring year? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> Whew, okay, um, your summary. There's two horrible villains named the Gecko Brothers, uh, Richie and Seth. Boy, I sure hope they get them in the end. I'll leave it up to you which one's the reasonable one and which one's the uh, 
criminally insane one. Well, which one is played by Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> hmm. My point is that they kind of switch roles here and there. Um, they robbed a bank. They kill a lot of people, take hostages, get into the Mexican border, over the Mexican border, over the U.S. border to Mexico. How about that? <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Accurate. They have a family hostage. The father's a preacher. His wife recently died. Uh, I'm sorry, recovering preacher? Right. <laughs> and he has two adolescent children. They were going on a family vacation. Uh-oh. Hostage situation. Um... Once they're over the border, they go to a titty bar, a titty <laughs> twister bar. A very uh, apt description. That is also the name of the establishment. So it's a location that's a bar for truckers and bikers, they say. They and say. There are uh, sex workers who dance for the patrons and they have a cool band. <laughs> a very cool band. Yeah. And um very cool sex workers. Yeah. Seth keeps trying to act like he's the reasonable one, but he and his brother are both fucking bloodthirsty. And Oh, and that juxtaposes them with the I get it now. Yeah, because it turns out all of the dancers, the band and the staff are vampires. Fucking vampires, man. See, that's the tricky thing all of the sex workers and people who live in mexico in this bar and in this narrative are vampires okay yeah yeah i see what you're saying okay we'll get to that later i also just want to point out that this is an hour and 40 long minute movie it is basically at exactly one hour that it goes from being a crime thriller to a vampire film yeah like, there is no intonation of supernaturalness anywhere in the first hour of this movie. So, Richie and Seth try to fight off the vampires with Jacob, that's the ex-preacher, and his son and daughter, Kate and Scott. And a few friendly and helpful bar patrons, like Sex Machine <laughs> and Frost. That's right. They... Actually kill a lot of the vampires very easily. Just pathetically easy. These vampires are going down like, I think Buffy would be jealous. Uh-oh, Richie is killed. Oh. Multiple my, times. My heart is, is breaking for that lovable, uh, horrible, disgusting, uh, filthy villain. <laughs> whose laundry list of offenses... On and off screen are things that I'm not even going to recount. Right. He's a stain on the timeline of the universe. That's right. So, basically, almost everyone ends up dying. Except for Seth and Kate. And Kate has some terrifying Stockholm Syndrome by the end of this film. Yeah, they make it out after Dawn breaks... And they're able to escape. Oh, because the bar is open from dusk until dawn. The yeah. time that vampires don't yeah, care you for. Get it. And um, Seth's friend Carlos shows up uh, to help save them. And he's the one who's like going to give Seth a place to lie low for a while. El Rey. And um, Seth feels bad for getting all of Kate's family killed. 
And so he gives there, there. her a few hundred thousand dollars from his bank heist and tells her to hit the road. But not after she tries to join him. I mean, of course. It's George Clooney with a neck tattoo. Right. Um, I've only got the neck tattoo. And then she drives off by herself in the RV. And the music would have us think that, like, her future is, like, bright and hopeful as she's driving away. <laughs> is that what the music tells us? It's playing, like, an upbeat rock song. Um, and then as the camera's panning up, you see, oh, the bar is actually situated at the top of a step pyramid that was probably an ancient Aztec pyramid. Yeah, not gonna lie, that's pretty rad. Like, it's it's a neat take. Well, that's it's uh, complicated, and we'll talk about that. It is complicated, but I mean, I like it as a supernatural origin, on its face at least. You gotta love a good ziggurat. <laughs> Wow, that was a summary of the things that we saw in the movie. The things we can't unsee in the movie. <laughs> so on that note, why don't we go into a hauntingly terrifying delve? <laughs> Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of From Dusk Till Dawn. Okay, guys, so this movie is unapologetically exploitative, offensive, prejudiced, and violent. I was uncomfortable most of the film. You I know? know, isn't it great? And it was gratuitous in the level of violence. And the length of the film, which I found to be torturous. <laughs> it's it was, only an hour and 40 minutes. Oh, maybe to you it did. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to admit, this movie did make me feel a little bloodthirsty because I was fucking relieved when Richie finally died. <laughs> and uh, twice the pleasure, twice the fun, I think. <laughs> Good point. Because <laughs> he died twice. Yes. <laughs> well, so the movie's really interesting, right? Because... As I said in the previous section, the first hour is basically a crime thriller. Yeah. There is nothing supernatural going on up to this point. It is two... It's basically natural-born killers, right? It's yeah. two horrifyingly terrible people doing outrageously bad things to people as they try to escape from a murderous rampage bank heist. Yeah. And ostensibly, these are the protagonists, question mark? Or is the whole point of the movie that there's no such thing as protagonists? That anybody can be a monster and that to juxtapose these terrible people with the monsters of, you know, of the titty twister, the vampires, is to show man's inhumanity to man. Or maybe it was just an excuse to be really well, violent and gross. You sure are shining this turd. I think it's a reflection of Quentin Tarantino's twisted ass soul. And his foot fetish. Yeah! <laughs> I loved this movie when I was younger, and I must have been, woo, in a different, like a really interesting headspace back then. Um, <laughs> I mean, what's not to love? Uh, I, I can't help but come away from this movie, like, actually... Like, severely disliking Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> because he wrote it or because of his character in the movie? Both. 
Really? I mean, the character is actually a pretty good villain. Like, I really hated the character. And I was happy when they died. But, <laughs> which I'm not happy that the movie made me feel that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with it. Um, <laughs> but, okay, think about this. Quentin wrote this movie. It's sensational in its gore and level of violence. Yeah, I mean, it's a celebration of exploitation cinema, much like every movie that he, and for the most part, the the adult films that Robert Rodriguez directs. Not the adult films, but the, like, R-rated films. Okay. Quentin got himself into a position where he could write himself into this film in a role where he takes advantage of women... And he gets to just oogle the actresses like Juliette Lewis and Selma Hayek. Um, he writes a scene where Selma Hayek's character is coming onto him and dancing provocatively in front of him and then sticks her fucking foot in his mouth and then shares alcohol with him mouth to mouth do you think tarantino had to pay to be in the movie for that maybe so okay hold on so what you're saying is you think that tarantino knew he was going to be in this role i think so okay i mean i don't know i have no idea about the production as far as that goes of the casting he knew what he was doing i think he did and uh i think that's vile and yeah if if you guys, the listeners, you guys, you all, you're familiar with uh, Tarantino's work. Uh, he's definitely the kind of guy that likes to create scenarios in which you root for things that go against the common virtues that we're taught, I feel. <laughs> definitely like what Chelsea was saying about how he makes characters that you want to see suffer, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily enjoy feeling that way. I do have a lot of fun watching many Tarantino films. But a lot of what he normally makes fun about movies, like, you know, fun, witty characters that, like, have a like a heart of gold or a sense of justice or something like that. Yeah, that's not here. No, it's literally just, like, all the, like, roughest parts of his art style in a movie. It's like staring into the ugly part of his soul and not blinking for a while. <laughs> well, 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 I do know that this was his first paid writing job on a film. It shows. Damn! <laughs> I do not care. <laughs> I, I, clearly, that's fine. He got better over time, sure. I but mean, this just, was rough. Just think of the evolution. It went this, true romance. I love that movie. Other actually. things. <laughs> Kill Bill, the best Tarantino movies. No. I know. Now I feel like I have to fucking rewatch those and be like, do they hold up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I think Kill Bill does, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe. I don't know if true romance is going to hold up. <laughs> I know. Anyway. <laughs> but uh yeah, the movie has a way of drumming up like bad emotions in you. Like, aggression and, like, disdain. So it's a cathartic movie. I mean, violence in this movie, it's so gratuitous. It's not just activity that goes on in the film that's, like, a vehicle for something else. 
it is a theme unto itself. It's impressive when you put it that way. I guess so. Um, we have physical violence um, of various types. There's murder. There's verbal violence done against... Um, Every single character in the entire film. <laughs> yeah, but disadvantaged groups or groups that wouldn't be in the same power dynamic as the main characters who are uh, spouting these slurs. <laughs> right. As a Tarantino movie, it is replete with racial epithets. It has somewhere between five and ten unique slurs in this film. <laughs> and not only racial slurs, no. but slurs against neurodivergent people as and, well. And LGBTQ people. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad I didn't hear that. Otherwise, I would have been even more pissed off. Um, I mean, this is very much a movie of its time. For sure. It is 20, <laughs> Golly. It's 25 years old. Older than some of our listeners. Older than some of our podcasters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of present throughout even with the tonal shift, that's kind of like the unifying force is the violence throughout the movie. It's the bloody glue that holds together the stitched carcass of the human body guitar that is this film. And now, Jamie, you pointed out that another glue for the tonal shift between the crime drama and the supernatural blood fest is the blood thirst. That's Between right. the different types of monsters in the movie, like you said. Yeah. The, the I almost said Coke Brothers. <laughs> oh, there's a bloodthirst there. Yeah. It's true. They're they're killing us all. Yeah. Um, Yippee. The Gecko Brothers are human monsters. Possibly worse than the supernatural monsters. Possibly. They may have killed just as many people as if they had been supernatural monsters. I, I just want to point out that the catalyst for the supernatural slaughter is that when Seth was going into the Titty Twister establishment, because we're at a place like that, you always say establishment. <laughs> he punches the hype man outside the door and like assaults him. And then Richie like kicks him in the ribs when he comes inside later, that's what starts the fight because of the violence that Seth and Richie began. They caused the entire bar to be killed by vampires. They're responsible for every death. The vampires seemed perfectly content to run their professional establishment for bikers and truckers. Hardworking folk. Sometimes they eat a few of them. They've got to survive. Yeah. I mean, come on. They probably just eat the ones who deserve it. This is a blue collar establishment. Yeah. Hardworking people. Now, juxtapose that with the Gecko Brothers. They're criminals. I almost corrected you to Coke Brothers again. <laughs> That's amazing. They're criminals. They don't work hard. They murder people and rob banks. They are coming in here and breaking up the lives of... Of a bunch of innocent, hardworking folks who are just trying to have a little bit of fun south of the border. <laughs> They're basically serial killers. They're on a killing spree. Yeah. As far so as we know, the the patrons of the Titty Twister find upstanding truck drivers. Yeah. Seth is trying to justify his behavior and say he only kills people who get in his way. 
And but he, he says a lot of things that don't match up with yeah, his actions. He tries to act like the uh, logical, reasonable one, but he is dangerous and dark just as much as his brother Richie. I mean, he's got tattoos. Of course he's evil. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing I, I got to point out that does make me think there is something clever about this movie, now that I think about it. Well, I think there's a lot clever about this movie. Okay. Really? (laughs) (laughs) It's the news coverage. Yes. Thank you. Of their killing spree. Brilliant bit of directing there. And acting. It's portraying the sensational media around crime. And they show, like, different groups of people that the brothers have killed. So it includes rangers civilians and bank workers they uh kidnapped a bank employee yeah but while the newscaster is recounting this story those three groups are listed below her on the screen and then it's like the numbers are rolling in for how many of each group they've killed right yeah it's it's like a a tally or like a game it sounds like a game show they're like they're dinging for each time the numbers are changing and then it's like and it shows their total of kills they've had so far Mm -hmm. and it's definitely like they're making a game out of it she's smiling the whole time yeah Yeah. this newscaster is effervescent as she's asked as she's reporting on this and interviewing a police officer and just like wow you're gonna go out and like fucking kill these guys she doesn't say fucking but she's just like wow, you're going to go out and and just completely slaughter these two, right? Like, she is just seeing ratings. I think the point here is how bloodthirsty the American people are in general when it comes to following these stories and, and wanting to view stories like this. So it's kind of like maybe Quentin is doing something clever and he's saying that we are bloodthirsty for wanting to watch this kind of a movie. This is know. 1996. This is the Iraq War. This is the O.J. Simpson trial. This is an era when the wholesale slaughter of people becomes a news media blitz to just be constantly covering carnage. Yeah, it's true. And people eat it up. So I, that one scene is kind of what makes me think that was a thought that went into this is kind of like a meta commentary on sensationalism and graphic violence. But then I don't know if the message holds true throughout the whole movie because the rest of it is kind of unapologetically graphic and there's nothing else in the movie to support that message. It's all just glorifying the violence. It's like, hey, hey, doesn't the media glorify violence? Check this out. Like, I know. all right, cool. That's that's some really glorious violence. In the end, they don't like say anything about the violence that has been done, either verbally or visually, to kind of bring that message home. They just leave it hanging there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of movies have a hard time sticking the landing when it comes to good cultural critique. I think that's maybe why I wasn't left with feeling like there was a clever message hidden in this movie and I had to kind of talk myself into it here. (laughs) 
I I'm not gonna give it to him. I hate to say. I I already made the point that uh, Quentin Tarantino's entire success is based on him saying, "Don't you want this guy to die? The just thing to do would to see this guy be brutally murdered." <laughs> Every film he has is just, "Oh, you can't wait to see this guy die." Yeah, and it's true. That's that's why we keep watching his films. It's like, wow, look, we've got to see the good guy just slaughter the bad guy. And that's Quentin Tarantino. And then he puts a bunch of boobs and N-words in the rest of his film. <laughs> right? Yeah. this movie <laughs> That sounds like a Tarantino film, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this movie in particular is definitely exploitative to women. Yes. Much more than his other films. Very um, much so. And it's, it's uh, this is the... This movie literally shows the male gaze. <laughs> yes, there is a scene that pretty much defines male gaze for anybody who uh, needs a primer on it. It's the scene where Richie is... In the RV. In the RV, oogling Kate. Yeah. And oggling Kate? Either way. <laughs> and staring at her feet. And then... Of course. Later as they're all watching the dancers, of course. Also, like, the the character... Receiving the male gaze is a minor as well. Oh, in the RV case. Yes. Yeah. We don't know exactly how old she is other than she's not 21 yet. Okay, that's true. But it seems like both characters are minors. They're very young. Yeah. So, yeah. And part of the kind of core assumption or aspect of the male gaze is an assumption that the female form is naturally erotic. And that is a bias we have in this culture. It's not the same in all cultures. I mean, in Greek culture, they assumed the male form was naturally erotic. It's true. They preferred not to think about the female form at all. Um, just a kind of interesting factoid. <laughs> it's funny, but it's an interesting factoid for you all. Yeah. Except for on the Isle of Lesbos. Mm. Ah, yes. They knew what was going on. <laughs> it just still blows my mind. Achilles became the king of Lesbos. <laughs> <laughs> I buy it. Yeah, yeah. So this movie is basically almost 100% male gaze. And that objectifies a whole group of people and dehumanizes them. And I didn't get the sense that they were trying to say anything with that. I don't even think that Quentin was aware of saying anything about that or that there could be anything to say about that. It was just that, oh, female bodies are erotic and I'm going to put that in this movie to attract attention. And also all sex workers are vampires. Okay, so that's another point. Because this gets into demonizing the other okay yeah i can so, see it there's a lot of very demonic vampires mm -hmm. groups that are put into this category of the other anybody who's like different from the main group is usually villainized portrayed as dangerous and disease carrying and what did quentin do he made the other literal monsters. Who are vampires who carry a very 
fast-acting, contagious. contagious disease of vampirism. Yes. That all you take is one bite. It's not like a uh, Vampire the Masquerade situation where vampires have to sire other vampires through a complex process. It's just, oh, bit on the arm, 10 minutes to an hour, vampire. And what, where do we see vampires? In Mexico. And the sex workers. So- I mean, the sex workers seem like they could be from all over the world. A global strip club, as it were. But it's specifically tied to the Aztec temple. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, not just Mexico, but a native site. It's sort of exoticizing and demonizing Native American cultures. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about, like, exotic, uh, like, shamanic practices of tribal societies. A lot of, you know, derogatory depictions of witch doctors are pretty common in media and stuff like that. And then this is definitely implying that the natives created some sort of a curse. And this bar, being at the top of the temple where rituals would have taken place, performed by a priestly class. Right. And not only that, but if this is an extension of the perceived native religion and the cross kills them, that's saying Christianity is better than the native religion. Yeah. That is a really excellent point that you're making there. That That's an interesting implication that I'm fairly sure is an unassumed one from the actual production of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the character of Seth describes the vampires as godless pieces of shit. <laughs> so, oh, they don't believe in the Christian god. They are godless. Right. And they come from hell. They kept saying how they, they're they denizens of hell. Now, of course, they also point out that they don't actually know anything about these vampires. They're just assuming from a lot of vampire lore. It's true. Like movies and books. Yeah. Like, that, that is literally lines in the movie. Like, what do we know about vampires from any real books? Yeah. <laughs> Which I, is a line that I really like. Actually. That was funny. Yeah. But see, now, I, I totally see what you guys are saying, and I... I see all these points. I want to problematize it a little bit, though. Yeah. Okay. Because I did find the Aztec vampire thing to be interesting, not unproblematic, but an interesting origin story for vampires. Also pointing out that this movie was directed and created in part by a Mexican-American filmmaker whose whole career has been celebrations of certain aspects of Latin culture and such. Now, you could say that that's been influenced by American and Eurocentric perspectives and all of that, but Robert Rodriguez has made a lot of movies where Mexico is the centerpiece of the film. Um, Yeah, I did think, like, to give Quentin, like, the benefit of the out uh in a small way i did think that one of the seed ideas for the script could have just been oh what if the priestly class and the noble class of the aztec empire were vampires and that could seem like a cool idea yeah right i mean a lot of uh rituals did involve blood sacrifice Sometimes human sacrifice, self-sacrifice, 
non-self-sacrifice. Yeah, it's true. This isn't the first or the last piece of media that showed the Aztecs as vampires. It's a pretty common depiction, actually, because uh, there's been a lot of evidence blown up into propaganda about the human sacrifice practices of the Aztecs. And I suppose a counterpoint could be any bloodthirsty group has been turned into vampires at some point. Example, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. (laughs) Future movie we'll be covering on this show. Looking forward to it. But uh, it's sort of problematic, I think, when it's a group that's already been genocided. Please don't turn them into a monster. I, More again. That's yeah, fair. by making them monstrous, they're othering them. That's fair. And mm-hmm. so let me point this out. The Gecko brothers in the beginning of the film are portrayed as monstrous killers that are unredeemable. I don't know if the film intended for that to be the case, but yes. That was how I saw it. Sure. Then at the end, the monstrous sex workers and people who worked at this bar. Hardworking bar staff and employees who were just trying to get through a long shift. Maybe most of whom are Mexican nationals. Are portrayed as irredeemable monsters that it's okay to just slaughter all of them. Right. The viewpoint is, oh, killing off all these vampires is good, actually. So they are put in the position of being monsters that it's okay to kill, but then somehow Richie gets this emotional moment from the other characters when he dies, even though he is probably a worse villain. I'm really creeped out by the fact that Juliette Lewis's character, Kate, seems to kind of be mournful about Richie's death because Richie was a complete fucking creep to her. Yeah, it's true. I mean, let me let me be clear. Not that not that watching another human being should ever be considered like, oh great. But she should I would say be nonplussed at best. So without going into any detail that would upset anyone, hopefully not, but we do need to mention, I think it's relevant to this part of the conversation, that Richie's character was portrayed as somebody who committed sexual violence against women. Not just portrayed. It was literally said in the text of the film. Yes. And this is a character that's being mourned by others. And he's he's just outright slaughtering people. Yeah. Also. I mean, again, it's, it's complicated, right? Because I think that intentionally or unintentionally... This film has an interesting way of portraying how maybe for a lot of people, it's really challenging when you have a close relationship with somebody who has done bad things. That theme or that narrative device is present in the film. You can say that... Because of the content of the movie, it is completely undeserved, but it is something that has that was built up throughout the film. Seth knows that his brother is a really bad person, 
He apologizes for him. Now, he also, Seth himself, does unspeakable, horrible things. But my point is more that I found it relatable that this movie portrays the feelings that one might have that are complicated for somebody that they know is a troubled individual. And you still care about them because you've known them. I think most viewers could probably map that onto their own lives. I, I'll give him that uh, I did like the relationship Seth had with his brother, just so far as he never wanted to let go of that brotherly relationship. He was yeah. constantly trying to talk his brother into kind of conforming to more normal behavior. Yeah, just in this case, normal for serial robbers and killers. Yeah. And uh, he was often trying to sort of, like, say white lies to sort of make him feel better and was often trying to spin a web that was comforting to him. I thought that was very nice. Yeah. And he wanted to be the one to kill his brother when his time came. So they had an interesting relationship. I liked the brotherhood amongst the scum. He was really (laughs) protective of his neurodivergent brother. Yes. Yes. And again, it's a troubling relationship, but I think that it mirrors less extreme real world examples. So before we move on, we've got to talk about spirituality, religion, and loss of faith, which are also important themes in the film, especially delivered through the character of Jacob, Harvey Keitel's former preacher character. Right. Certainly the mature theme in the film. What I mean by it is the rest is just so, like, surface level. A lot of what you see speaks for itself. Unexamined biases and assumptions laden throughout the narrative, yeah. It's true. Someone's faith and relationship to, like, a spiritual creator and... Uh, how that interweaves with loss and your expectations of what you should get or what you're owed by, like, a deity. Now, those are things you really have to think deep about, right? Yeah. And that's something a kid couldn't easily do. The rest of this film a child can understand. (laughs) But should not watch. Or right. (laughs) It's true. I feel like a middle schooler could have made the rest of this film. Yeah, it's fair. (laughs) Yeah. But one of the things the father character in this film, whose name is... Jacob. Jacob. (laughs) Yes. One of the things the character is grappling with is the loss of his faith tied to the loss of his wife. Right. In a car crash. And George Clooney's character kind of points out like, oh, you lost your faith because of that, huh? Like, he's kind of the omniscient voice explaining the theme to an audience who might be unfamiliar with the concept of like real world emotions in films from this period. Deeper messages. (laughs) It's true. I think that character, the father, Jacob has a different faith at the beginning, like before the film even than he does at the end. Right. And the reason for it being his faith seemed founded on the idea that God in God's goodness, the way Jacob believed in it, means that God will provide you with 
only beneficial positive things, right. right? No adversity, no challenges, sweet life. A life of peace and plenty. That's right. And when something tragic happens to him, he says, oh, God, thanks for the tragedy. <laughs> and he tells Kate when she's confronting him about it in a gentle way. He says, oh, I still believe in God and Jesus. I just don't love them anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's the meanest thing he can think to say. It, oh, that's pretty dark. <laughs> it's because I don't think he's ever examined why, you know, a lot of people think like, if there's a good God, how can bad things still happen? Right. I don't think that was something he really spent a lot of time considering until it happened to him. And then he was in a damaged state. So he couldn't come up with a good answer for it, and he lost his faith, right? He became a hopeless individual. Yeah. And throughout the film, he's put into a pretty dang hopeless situation, I'll tell you what. Yeah, it's rough. Not gonna lie. He had a bad night. It's true. Through the adversity, though, he does find his faith again. It's true. And... I think it came from the realization through the help of one of the criminal brothers, one of the gecko brothers, that uh, the faith comes from hope, right? Jacob is hoping that his kids are going to make it through this. Ooh, I've got some bad news for Jacob in the afterlife. Kid makes it through this. <laughs> one of his teenage children explodes after becoming a vampire. Yeah. It's true. And uh, Jacob is basically being told like, hey, as a person of faith, you have the power to fight vampires. We need you to get over this, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Get, get over your trauma. That's what you say to traumatized people. That's right. right. Mm. Instantly get better because yeah. now vampires. Yeah. Get over it. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's what he's saying. And, and it works. Yay! What? <laughs> Suddenly he's blessing holy water-filled condoms and holding As you a, do. holding a shotgun and a baseball bat in the sign of the cross. <laughs> so w the message of this movie is if you are grappling with your faith, if you're feeling, you know, a tremendous sadness that cannot be filled by relationships or God, head on down to a vampire-run sex club and you know, just start scooping up the faith off the floor. Thank you, Chelsea. Yeah. It works. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Belmont. <laughs> but uh, yeah, his faith becomes sort of based around, I need my kids to survive and I'm going to live and believe that my actions are going to make that happen. And it becomes a grim sort of faith after he himself is bitten by a vampire. Right, and says, thank you. Hey, don't think of me as someone who is alive. I'm already dead, but I can still help you out. You know, I gotta say, though, is it really faith? Because he didn't have faith until he was given a literal sign that there's some force he could fight against. And in the lore of this movie, Christianity is the faith that can combat the vampires. So he's given literal proof that the Christian powers that be work. So is it really faith at that point? 
Are you so the question you're asking is whether or not faith can exist when you can have literal evidence? Yeah, because um, faith isn't generated from being able to see literal proof of the divine. It's kind of trust that it's there, right? Uh, yeah. There, yeah, that's very Christian way of looking at faith. Blessed are those who believe, but who have not seen. Then again, there are some who would argue that they have seen the evidence of it many times throughout their lives, and that's why they're believers. Yeah. They just see miracles in what others might see as mundane occurrences or coincidences or so on and so forth. True. I think a way this could have been handled much more sensitively is if to an Aztec problem, there was an Aztec solution. That would be very fucking cool. That would be. I just want to like finish this thought. Yeah. I don't think it's faith. I think it's belief at this point. I see the difference. I see it. Yeah. I mean, I think often they are intermingled intertwined but they're two different things inseparable right but yeah they are two different things Um, from an anthropological perspective sure philosophically too but going back to the interesting point that jack was making aztec problems require aztec solutions i love it you only show them negatively This film only shows them negative. Yeah, not you. You wouldn't do that, listener. No. (laughs) You're better than that. Yeah, you are. We know you respect the Aztecs. (laughs) You gotta respect the Aztecs. And cultural beliefs of all types. Yes. I'm just saying, if you talked to an Aztec uh, before making this film, someone who is familiar with their culture, I'm sure this would have been done in a much more sensitive way. (laughs) <laughs> just an easy example, right? A little taste of rewriting history for all you uh, considering the Patreon. Ooh, that tasty Patreon. Yeah, let's hear it. For example, Christian creator God, mm-hmm. the Aztecs also believed in a creator God. You easily could have had one of the bikers, someone who lives near Aztec ruins, yes. been knowledgeable about their culture, and why wouldn't they be? Yes. And about their own heritage. Lots of Mexican citizens have Aztec ethnic backgrounds. Yeah. And a lot of, I mean, I think there's a lot of pride about that, too. There is. Definitely. So people would know something about it. And you easily could have had a character since they were in this bar with other survivors for quite some time. Someone who says, hey, I know something about Aztec spirituality. Use this. And they could have said, hey, someone read a book that we didn't read. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there you go. There's that book about vampirism that was for real. And it, yeah, they're the other one of the other survivors in the bar. And they don't have to be someone who has all the answers. Sure. We're not talking about like uh what do you say like a Gary Stu Aztec insert character. Deus Ex Aztec. But, but I would like that yeah, this yeah. biker would be a genius just to subvert tropes and assumptions about the way somebody looks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Totally. But well, I've actually read cool. extensively about Aztec lore, and I can tell you the perfect solution because this was recorded in a document or in a you know on a some kind of historical relic. The Aztecs knew about vampires. Here's how they fought them. Yep, and this would be super clutch to be ha- the scene, the setting to be happening somewhere in the temple where they've run to. Yeah, to, it's true. To seek refuge. And they're in a ritual room and there are uh, hieroglyphs on the walls and he can read them, the survivor. Yes, love it. Better than just this throwaway at the end where it's like, oh, it was the Aztecs all along who were evil demon vampire people. And he like reads a ritual that they can perform. It's true. In the back room, right? We could still have it. They find a supply room where they make fun weapons because that was fun and goofy. Yeah. Uh, like the super soaker full of holy water, the jackhammer with a stake at the end. But they exchange <laughs> ideas. Aztec and Christian ideas come together to create a super vampire killing strategy. That sounds Because cool the to me. Christian ideas worked, the Aztec ideas work, put them together. They don't work. No, they do work. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive people. Yeah, it could be any strong religious iconography is repellent to vampires. Because it has to do with your belief. Exactly. In the effectiveness of it. Yeah. Yeah. That would be fun. So there's a little taste for all you people who maybe are considering our Patreon. Yeah. And becoming a supporter of the show. Subtle. <laughs> <laughs> We can't afford to be subtle here, Jamie. (laughs) Normally, I'm the cheap plugs guy. (laughs) Get that cheap heat. But there you go. I think faith was definitely the most compelling theme in this. Everything else was like grease on my frontal lobe, an oil spill in my hippocampus. That was then set on fire. Yep. (laughs) Just like a liquor store. I mean, after all those glowing things we've said, I think it's probably time to head to the smithy. Welcome to the smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack Do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from one to ten codpiece guns? (laughs) Yes. My epic moment or feature was at the beginning of the film. There was this one uh, convenience store gas station clerk. And he was, uh, yeah, Pete. He was pretty hype. I mean, he said a few slurs. (laughs) But, uh. Oh, boy. You know, he was in a hostage situation and uh, he He was was, under a lot of pressure. He was acting casual. Not that that excuses it, but, you know, uh, add some sympathy, perhaps. But I'll tell you what happens. He he acts very well under pressure. Oh, my God. Yes. So well. Very well. And when he gets into a shootout, he has a gun. He gets into a shootout with the Gecko Brothers. Uh, because Quentin Tarantino's character perceives that Pete said, help me, mouthed help me to the cop, when we as the audience know that that did not happen. 
And Pete, after shooting Quentin Tarantino's character through the hand and getting into a tense situation with them, is like, I didn't say it, you fucks. <laughs> yeah, he's still demanding that he did not say it in the middle of a shootout. You know, he's probably gonna die. He, one of the brothers is likely going to die in this situation, and he still insists on his innocence on that one matter. I thought that was pretty hype. And the reason why that's the most epic moment is because it goes downhill after the first ten minutes. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I thought the beginning was pretty neato. <laughs> that fun little gas station shootout, a lot of fun. Yep. Uh, so, that was pretty That was pretty epic. <laughs> Liquor store shootout. Yeah, yeah. But when it comes to a rating for this, what are we rating it in? Codpiece guns. Codpiece guns, that's right. Uh, when I think of this film, uh, let's see... Oh, I've said so much about it already. Should I even say? Well, this movie was actively damaging. <laughs> Two out of ten codpiece guns. Wow. You don't get any more of my words. Okay. <laughs> the man has spoken. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you give it two instead of zero? Two instead of zero? Uh, well, okay, I'll tell you why this got a two, then. I'll give you words. I'll give you... Give our listeners words. You, and I would love to. It's gotta be the family <laughs> dynamic. I'm pretty okay. sure the theme of family... And the faith. The brotherhood, theme. the faith, the dad, the kids. Oh, but their relationship was really horrendous at times. Also damaging. There were a few fun moments that almost made you forget. <laughs> the terrible. The ter <laughs> the endorphins released by the the torment, you know. Uh oh jeez, oh golly, maybe it's lower. I'm going to stop before I convince myself it's lower. <laughs> Is this the Polar Express of Halloween movies? <laughs> oh my no. god, what did we give the Polar Express? 0. I'm pretty sure oh, I gave it a 0. Yeah, okay. No, I think we gave it a collective 0 out of 30. <laughs> I think that I said that it was a crime against humanity. This is flirting with that, but it's not quite there yet. Uh so yeah, I guess in conclusion, 1 out of 10 codpiece guns. I mean, you only need one, really. <laughs> That's true! <laughs> I wish it were aiming the other way. I, I think wish... most people wouldn't know what to do with more than one. <laughs> this movie may or may not be as enjoyable as shooting your own dick off. <laughs> How do you control that thing, though? <laughs> with your dick. All right, I guess that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Chelsea, how about you? What's your epic moment or feature? And then your rating from one to ten codpiece guns. Okay. Now you have to pick one epic moment <laughs> or feature. All right? <laughs> you can't sneak in more than one. <laughs> that, that would be unprecedented anyways. <laughs> okay, so what... I'm going to throw a monkey wrench in this. Ooh, monkey. And if only. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this movie had no monkeys in it. Zero out of ten. <laughs> if it had a chimp, I think it would have gotten a lot more. No, that's an yeah. ape. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, no monkey business, Jack. Ooh, baboon. <laughs> <laughs> 
You guys are catching on though, because my epic feature is the yellow boa constrictor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is on Selma Hayek's neck and shoulders and draped all around her while she's dancing. And um, I gotta say that that snake was pretty hype. Well, Selma was dancing with that on her. I really could only see the snake. Impressive. Yeah. Uh, I was just mesmerized by it. And I thought it was pretty cool. And it. I was sitting there going like, I wonder how heavy that snake is. It, it must have been very heavy. Because they're pure muscle almost. So, yeah. That snake <laughs> out of this movie. That snake was a cool feature. Ten out um, of ten. <laughs> perfect snake. <laughs> I love the, and yeah, snake. Like, like there's more words that should be said, but it, it really speaks for itself. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't drum them up, so there you go. Snake, pretty hype. <laughs> oh boy, I'm really, I'm glad Jack, like, kind of set the bar for us here with his number, because that gives me... Something t- like a context to work off of. So I appreciate that. <laughs> I got to say, like, I'm going to give two ratings, okay? Just to be fair. So Now, hold on a minute. Is that a... <laughs> no, trust Is me. that within the swords and satire code? Have faith, Jamie. There's no rule that says a satirist can't make two ratings. That's true. <laughs> I don't know. Take a look at these bylaws that I scripted. <laughs> so for the movie itself, all... Aspects related to Quentin. Whoa. I am going to give this zero out of ten. Whoa. Was it cock guns or cod piece? But I oh, like cock. It's. I mean, let's let's call it what it is. It's a cock gun. Okay. It's even got two little barrel balls. Yeah, but for some of the themes that Jack mentioned, loosely but more solidly, as a thank you to our patrons. For giving us the opportunity to talk about this movie and cover these interesting subjects. And an honor to you two. I'm going to give it 10 out of 10 for talking about it with you guys. Aww. And for our patrons voting. Yay. (laughs) And that's a 10 out of 10 uh, vampire teeth. Not cock. Oh, (laughs) okay. I see. Yeah. Today, we've lived out the popular movie trope of shared trauma bringing us closer together. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 10 out of 10 for that. All right. What about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating out of 0 to 10 cock guns? Codpiece guns. Codpiece guns. Yes, Jamie. Please tell us, Jamie. Guys, I just want to quote my favorite TV show, Metalocalypse, and say, it's a really cool cod piece. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Except, of course, in Metalocalypse, it's a dodo. Right. A strap-on dodo. That gun could be a dodo. <laughs> I am not going to get into those implications. That would be dangerous. I just appreciate the honesty of that cod piece. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. We know we have all had cringy pasts, and this is Quentin Tarantino's. I think he grew out of this okay, to that's a degree. Fair. We're just, you know, you look that, back yeah. at anyone, there's going to be a moment like this. I mean, this again, I think this movie was very much of its time. Yes. Yeah. So, my epic moment is when this movie does something that I think is pretty smart. 
And that is it finally explains why vampires die so fucking easily from stakes to the heart and decapitation. Because if you think about it, the rib cage is literally designed to prevent things like a stake (laughs) going through your heart. And your sternum. Yeah. Your rib cage and sternum. And necks don't, you know, your head doesn't just pop off like when somebody wraps a bullwhip around your neck and yanks it a little bit. Just in case you didn't know this, movies do not always depict realistic deaths. You don't just break somebody's neck and kill them by giving them a slight neck adjustment like in every single action movie where somebody does the neck break. You might have an abrasion. Yeah, sure. (laughs) This movie goes out of its way in the dialogue to be like, oh, they're vampires. Their ribs and bones are really squishy and their skin is really soft and pliable that's why it's so easy to like just pound a steak through them i'm like okay that's fun like just that's why i think that the content of the movie has got some smart elements to it okay it is it knows what it's doing not it's not necessarily saying that it is you know infallible for that i do not think it knows what it's doing in all aspects sure on occasion it might. Right. It is a send up. <laughs> it might. It, I mean, this is this is Tarantino and Rodriguez. These guys have made careers out of celebrating the exploitation period of cinema. Grindhouse, right? I mean yeah. every Tarantino movie is is about that or is tied up in that. It is big and bold and just outlandish. The guy, you know, Tarantino directed a movie that's a revisionist history of World War II. Right. Rodriguez made Sin City. Yeah. And basically, like, panel for panel recreated a graphic novel in movie form. It is about big presentation and overly dramatic, explosive cinema. And I think this movie does that pretty well while also being very much a relic of its time. So I am going to give this movie four out of five codpiece guns. I did not have the same deep loathing for it that you guys did. I understand all of the criticisms, of course. I don't know if it's just that, for me, vampire movies are already so like baked into these ideas about... Christian belief being the way that you kill vampires going back to like fucking Dracula and everything, right? Crosses and holy water and all that. Maybe I've played too much Castlevania or just the right amount of Castlevania. But when I see crosses and holy water killing vampires, I'm like, duh, that's how you do this shit. Blessed whips, throwing daggers, axes that you toss at a, high arc over your head. These are vampire hunting tools. <laughs> Duh. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's also got this big heavy metal aesthetic and it's just completely ridiculous. The first hour of the movie, that's like a crime thriller. I'm like, it's a passable crime thriller that has really troubling characters that I don't know if we're supposed to root for them or not. But once the vampire stuff kicks in, I'm just like, yeah, I'll let this wash over me. It's fun. It looks really cool. It's completely insane. And I think the definitive description of 
Tarantino's career in the 90s and early 2000s, at least, is shock value. Yeah. And yeah. some people might completely revile that. Some people might absolutely celebrate it. I fall like right in the middle where like I get all the critiques. I completely agree with them. And I also, again, kind of let it wash over me and just have fun with it. That's how I felt with this. I had a really good time watching it with you guys. I've had an amazing time talking about yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll echo Chelsea's 10 out of 10 for the time. The movie, yeah, I think deserves about a four. Well, well, at least in my opinion. Yeah, there you go. I'd like to put out there, again, we've really shat on Tarantino throughout this whole thing. I'm worried that we shat on him too much. But, yeah, like I said, we all have our cringy moments in our past. I think this might have been that moment for Tarantino when it comes to his filmmaking. That's fair. I can agree with that, probably. There are great films that tarantino has made and i think they're really good really enjoyable i agree with that there are definitely i would say like two different eras of tarantino movies like the ones you just mentioned where it's the shock value two or three i would say Yeah, yeah two or three and uh i'm a fan a lot of his newer stuff Including, like, Inglorious Bastards, the World War yeah. II revision. Yeah. Once I really a- like that one. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was kind of divisive for Tarantino fans, since it wasn't an all-out bloodbath the entire time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a movie with a happy ending, and I thought that was neat. <laughs> I, I've seen a spotty collection of Tarantino's films. I'm pretty sure... The first film I saw of his was probably Kill Bill, unless I saw Pulp Fiction first. I didn't get into his movies until a little bit later into his career. I was also, like, I don't know how old I was when Pulp Fiction came out, like 12 or 13. Maybe not even, so. But, I mean, I've seen Pulp Fiction since then. I've seen Inglorious Bastards. Kill Bill is absolutely my favorite of his films. It's an epic. Both of them. I mean, the first one, I think, more, but... Both of them, honestly. It's an epic. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Uh, as like, I really liked uh, True Romance when I saw it. It also has one of the most problematic uh, racial scenes in cinema history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I might say a movie that potentially has similar vibes to it, but done in a much better way would be Django Unchained. Because it's effectively a bloodbath throughout the whole thing. It's sort of bordering whether they're criminals, they're lovable, like, kind of scoundrels, but their villains are much more monstrous, and it's the classic Tarantino, I can't wait to see how they kill this guy. Yeah, I think that what I kind of noticed while watching From Dust Till Dawn is that a lot of times Tarantino's characters are either anti-heroes... Or are just straight up, these are people that should not be celebrated. This is the should not be celebrated variety when we've got the Gecko Brothers. It's true. Right. And we can only hope that this does not reflect Tarantino's views on humanity. (laughs) I mean, he's a cynic of nothing else. But we've roasted this film and hopefully not completely besmirched Tarantino's name. (laughs) I mean, we have only 
touched on Rodriguez to some extent, who's the director of this movie. It's true. True. I mean, he's made, I think, Jack's favorite movies of all time, the Spy Kids series. The Spy Kids series and Shark Boy and Lava Girl, clearly a maestro behind the camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Desperado. Yeah, yeah. All very fun movies. All right, well, that'll do it for us on another vampire edition of Scares and Satire. Woo! As always, if you've enjoyed hanging out with us and hearing our thoughts about movies, you can always follow us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you can keep up with the movies we watch every week and check out the memes that we post. That's right. And we've been talking about our Patreon page. I mean, we mentioned it like maybe once at the beginning. But I don't think we actually gave you a place to go. We did. I totally did it in the beginning. I wasn't paying attention. We should do it again. And if others weren't either, I'll repeat it here. Yay. So if you want to support, be a supporter of the show and you have the means, you can go to patreon.com slash swords and satire. Check out the tiers and uh, select one to become a patron of the show. And you'll get cool exclusive content and voting rights on the movies that we watch each month so that's pretty cool it's true the patrons make this show possible but if you don't have a few extra bucks to send over to support some of your favorite artists why not spread the word of the podcast to your friends and family get that listener base developed and then you'll have more people to connect with to talk about your very favorite podcast in the whole world, oh boy. <laughs> and the movies that you watch, maybe together. It's true. And with films like this, maybe look up a preview before you watch it with your family. <laughs> <laughs> or just go in cold, whatever. <laughs> just stare at your family the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not? We did it. <laughs> I mean, it'll be entertaining as heck. I guarantee you won't be bored. Right. <laughs> yeah. Especially... You know what? That's true. It's true. And when you all listen to the episode of the podcast together, I'm sure you will share some feelings with us. And if not, you can go talk about it on our social media. <laughs> well, there you have it. All right, Chelsea, what are we watching next time? Well, next week, it's pretty fucking awesome. Because we're going to share with all of you our first... Episode covering Over the Garden Wall. I'm pretty sure the internet just exploded. I'm withholding a scream with all my might. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure the internet just had a collective orgasm when you said that. <laughs> Isn't that what I said? <laughs> all right. Well, until then. Hail, Hail Crom. Crom.